Hi, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Bad Chinese Teacher podcast. I'm Patricia. I'm an actual Chinese teacher, and the show is basically what the inside of my brain looks like when I'm not teaching. <laughs>、uh, the show is all about providing an honest, frank look at the Chinese learning and teaching world. And today, we're looking at a book by Lenora Chu called "Little Soldiers: An American Boy, a Chinese School, and the Global Race to Achieve." It was published in 2017, so around two years ago, and it talks about a Chinese American writer, Lenora, and her husband、uh, when they were living in Shanghai, and they sent their kindergarten son to study at a local kindergarten rather than an international school. And they did this all to answer the question as to whether or not Chinese educational philosophy and methods were better than Western methods. Um, so I originally found this book not from looking at the book itself, but because、uh, I found it through this Wall Street Journal article that was entitled、uh, quite provocatively "Why American Students Need Chinese Schools." I'll link that article in the show notes.、Uh, mostly because I was also frantically googling for things like、uh, teaching Chinese to American students or like Chinese work ethic American schools. So I was clearly coming from a place of frustration. Um, because I had been at that point teaching Chinese for about four to five years, and I was kind of coming to this impasse where、uh, I realized that Chinese language, learning Chinese language, and hard work were two kind of inescapable things.、Um, and and for anyone who has ever studied Chinese, this is kind of a no brainer.、Uh, if you know anything about Chinese, you'll know that. There is no alphabet, which is kind of a funny thing because most sensible languages have like a phonetic alphabet. Chinese has no alphabet. Instead, it has like thousands and thousands of characters. All of them look different,、um, and all of them have a specific sound and meaning. So, if you're asking yourself, "How do I read something in Chinese if there's no alphabet?" Well, the answer to that is that you have to memorize all of these characters in order for you to like even read the most simple things. So, Chinese. As a language, when you're learning it, is extremely memorization based, and memorization to anyone is just a lot of grueling, hard work. Right?、Um, it takes time,、um, and it's kind of boring, and it's not really something that you just kind of like gain organically for most people. Um, but there is also this underlying like assumption slash hope that comes with memorization,、uh, and that is that like it doesn't take a genius to memorize. You don't have to have like crazy great critical thinking skills or reasoning skills. You don't have to be a genius to memorize anything because it just takes hard work. As long as you're willing to put in the hard work of memorizing, rote memorization, you can memorize anything.、Um, And so, for a lot of people, right, that makes logical sense. You know, you don't have to have an extremely high IQ or be really, really clever in order to memorize a lot of stuff.、Um, but the problem that I ran into was that I ran into students who, for whatever reason,、uh, could not or would not memorize.、Um, and and when I say would not, I don't mean like a straight up refusal to like you know do homework. Although I mean you know that happens.、Uh, but it was more kind of like the prospect of. Having like this long list of things and being like you have to stuff this all in your brain for this test,、um, it brought this immense anxiety、uh, to his students, which then translated to low grades. And low grades is something that when I was first starting out in my career was something that was kind of a constant theme. I realized just because. Um, I was testing kids on things that I thought was very straightforward. Right, you have a vocabulary list,、uh, you memorize a vocabulary list, quizzes on Friday. Right,、um, and and if you get a low grade on it, well, that's just A result of your lack of preparation. If you only prepared more, you worked harder, you would get a higher grade.、It、seems like very basic math,、um, and and this kind of like relays itself into how like Asian cultures in general how they view grades, right?、Um, if you get a low grade, anyone who's grown up in like an Asian household can probably relate to this. If you get a low grade,、uh, that basically means that it's your fault because you didn't study hard enough.、Um, And that it's something that was completely preventable, and it's your responsibility, one hundred percent, to have to to take responsibility for that low grade and to then raise it through your hard work.、Um, in Western societies, particularly in this day and age, it's a little bit different.、Um, in that, when you get when a student gets a low grade, it's not necessarily a direct reflection of their lack of effort、um, or their laziness. Rather, a low grade just means something simple. It means that you're struggling. Uh, and that word can really mean a lot of things. It usually points to like you don't understand the material, right?、Um, or that you are just having issues, right? It's not something that is like directly tied to your 
diligence or your work ethic or really just kind of like your your value as a person. Um, but it just really comes down to the fact that there is something that you had a hard time learning, and there is uh, this is not the end of the story, right? Um, and that there are there you're assuming that there are people who are there to help you to understand. Um, so when I first came across this issue of students getting low grades because of what I thought was a lack of preparation, a lack of sense of responsibility, um, I found myself being kind of jaded and bitter because I had thought that like, you know, this is not an excuse, right? Like you are struggling, but really a vocabulary quiz is the most straightforward thing there is. You just memorize it. doesn't take a genius. You just do it. And the only reason why you're saying you're struggling, quote unquote, is because you're refusing to take responsibility for uh, your lack of effort, your your refusal to put in the time to memorize. Um, and so basically, right, um, if you're hearing this and you're like, man, this person is kind of terrible, Patricia is kind of a terrible person, uh, I would not disagree. I think, I think during the first few years of my career, I was basically a self-described tiger mom. Um, if you've read that book uh, by Amy Chua, um, you'll, you'll understand that reference. Or if you've like been an Asian for the past 10 years, you probably understand that reference. Um, and so, so I was really frustrated with that. And, and, and I thought that like there was, I'd hit an impasse with teaching Chinese because it seemed to me that Chinese was all about memorization, right? You cannot be literate unless you memorize and memorization takes work. Um, but there's this other component with regards to teaching Chinese or learning Chinese, uh, that also kind of turns the memorization hard work thing on its head. And that has to do with the grammar. Um, and, and, and anyone who's asked a native Chinese speaker about Chinese grammar has probably had the experience of them telling you that, you know, what grammar? Chinese has no grammar. Um, and you'll, if you talk to any linguistics, uh, linguistics, uh, linguist, they'll probably say, no, there are grammar rules to Chinese. Like there are grammar rules to every language. Language is systematic, no matter what language it is. Um, and, and that is true for Chinese as well. It's not as if Chinese is just this esoteric, illogical, grammatical nonsense that doesn't have any structure. It really, it really does. Uh, but it just is not as intuitive. It's not as if you can conjugate verbs. Verbs don't conjugate in Chinese for, for starters. Um, there's, it's not as if like, you know, and it's not to say that other languages are as systematic as this, but it's not as if you have like a list of rules or a list of formulas where you can just plug in words or conjugate verbs in a certain way and voila, you are magically fluent. There's something very organic about Chinese grammar that requires you to not just like memorize rules, um, but to acquire those patterns, acquire what quote unquote sounds right um, in a very organic, natural way, in a natural acquisition sort of way. We're talking about like language pedagogy. Um, what I tell my students is not like, you know, that, that learning Chinese is not about rules. There's no rules for you really left to learn. Um, but it's really about mimicking what you hear, which is what we do in our native languages anyway. If you've ever noticed that like the way that you talk oftentimes reflects the people that you're surrounded with or the books or media you consume, you hear phrases that people say in around you and then you like adopt those for yourself because you think it sounds cool. You think it's like a clever way of saying something. Learning any other language, I think, is um, in an ideal world, right? Supposed to be like that. And and with Chinese grammar in particular, it it seems to me that that is the most logical way to pick up grammar um, under a guided, you know, heavily controlled context, being that being the classroom, um, because Chinese grammar just doesn't have a lot of handholds, a lot of like grammatical rules for you to hold on to and for you to plug in things and words and assume that you will be right as long as you, you know, do the math correctly. Um, but the idea of natural acquisition uh, as it regards to Chinese is something that I love talking about and we will probably have to say for a future episode. Anyway, um, as I was reading this book, I remembered this blog post. Uh, so you can you can imagine the the extent of my angsty googling uh, when I was when I was st just starting my career um, about this blog post that was written by another a Chinese teacher, another Chinese teacher called uh, Mei Ching Zhang uh, Zhang Mei Jing. And she's a Chinese glass, a Chinese teacher in Glastonbury, which is actually like a, an hour away from my house. And that school district is like known in our state for its world language program. They offer like way more languages than most public schools in this area or really at all do. Um, they're just known for this stuff. They're leaders in world language uh, education, particularly in public schools. Um, and so her blog post, which I'll also link in the show notes, um, also echoed just in a very like frank 
concise way. Uh, the frustrations of many Chinese teachers, teachers that I had talked to, and also like including myself. Um, basically, she was saying how like when she was teaching in Taiwan, I think that's where she originally got her degree. Uh, she had a degree in like teaching Chinese, and it theoretically all worked out under a certain like educational context in Asia, where like students were just given homework, and if they're given homework, they just do it. Parents would never complain about anything. There is no such thing as too much homework or tests that were too hard.、Um, and then she came to the U.S. and she realized that all of those rules like did not apply.、Um, and on top of that, there were issues with like classroom management. And dealing with、uh, students with special needs, with IEPs and 504s,、uh, and just all this stuff that, like, when you're a teacher in Asia, where things, at least on the surface, seem to be a lot more straightforward, you come to the U.S. and you realize there's just so much more going on, and what you thought worked in Asia does not work here. And this actually, what she was writing, actually reflected、uh, numerous. Which I was surprised about. Numerous academic studies and papers on this very topic. You can actually go to like JSTOR or Google, like me,、um, and find like a whole bunch of academic studies on how Chinese teachers from China or Taiwan or Asia in general, what happens when they try to come teach or they come teach in、uh, the U.S. or in Australia or in Canada or in Europe、uh, or in an otherwise non-Asian context. There's just been a bunch of studies on this, and most of them I've only skimmed like a. A few of them,、um, but most of them seem to come to the same conclusion:、uh, that the main issue that Chinese teachers had、uh, upon coming to a Western、uh, school that they did not have to deal with in Asia was largely classroom management,、um, which I think, you know, in my opinion, probably wasn't actually the biggest issue. Biggest meaning like the most,、uh, the most damning, the most significant issue, but definitely it's the most visible and on your day to day, it's like the, the most frustrating issue. Um, that as well as like communication or understanding what the parents expect,、um, as well as the other common challenges that I mentioned before, like differentiation or like working with special needs students or documenting things.、Um, and the conclusions to all these studies oftentimes just pointed to just needing more teacher training. That teachers who are coming from Asia just need to know. Before they come, or like as they are teaching, what the expectations are here and how to deal with them, just because they are so different from what、uh, the educational landscape looks like in China or in Taiwan,、um, as well as you know, as kind of a side note, not relying as much on like temporary guest teachers who have. This has been a trend lately for、uh, for teachers who who come from China on a very short term basis、uh, to come teach at American schools, American public schools, because there is a teacher shortage. Um, in the U.S., of licensed、uh, teachers of Chinese that were trained in the U.S. to teach in American public schools,、um, and that in itself, like this, is pointing towards like Confucius Institute and other things. If you've heard of that,、um, which is an interesting socio-political piece in itself, probably a discussion for another time. So, for me, I've been teaching in an American school in the U.S., a private independent school, for about six years now, and. It's been challenging for the same reasons why、uh, Zhang Lao's Mei Qingzhang、uh, said in her blog post, as well as all these teachers who were parts of these academic studies. But at the same time, I don't believe that teaching Chinese successfully under an American cultural context is impossible. Right?、Um, there's been a lot of like examples to the contrary of that, like mostly quantified or qualified by the fact that the teacher turnover rate for Chinese is like super, super high. Um, my school alone went through quite a few teachers before I landed at the position, and I think I'm the probably I'm the longest surviving teacher of Chinese at my school to date, and that's not unusual、uh, for for schools for for that high turn turnover rate to be happening.、Um, so so that being said. In order for I, I don't believe that it's impossible for Chinese to become mainstreamed in public schools for all levels for students of all backgrounds. I'm just an idealist like that.、Um, but it goes to goes without saying that big adjustments and shifts in one's perspective on education, as well as expectations of students and parents, communities have to be made.、Um, But as we're looking at this, right, we're we're faced with the reality, right, that it is possible for American students to learn Chinese. And in order for that to happen, there has to be a lot of hard work that goes into it, a lot of just changing of expectations, changing of your assumptions of what a classroom looks like. Especially if you're a Chinese person who、um, had a certain idea of what education ought to look like, had a certain expectation as to what level students ought to be able to achieve,、um, and then to say、mm, that doesn't work here because of reasons. 
right? And if you're really dedicated to the craft, you can kind of look at that and be like, yeah, I can accept that and work with that because that's my job. At the same time, though, you could be someone who like sees the challenges in front of you and is willing to take that on because, you know, it's your career, you're passionate about it. But at the same time, and I include myself in this group, um, you're looking over to like the educational landscapes in Asia and how like students are super compliant and parents are super, you know, accommodating um, and teacher's word is law. And you look over there and you're like, hmm, yeah looks looks nice there uh wish wish i were there instead you know it's it's hard to have that it's like that meme with like the guy and the, the girl with the girlfriend and then there's like another girl like hmm, that would be that would be kind of nice that seems a lot easier um and so as i was reading lenora chu's book which just really gives like this extended snapshot of life in a chinese kindergarten in shanghai and she makes it clear that this is like not a average school that is like you know like in the middle of nowhere this is like in shanghai this is an elite school that like local parents local families like bend over backwards to try to get into and she mentions in the book that her son only gets in because she brings her white husband along and like the administration's super impressed and they admit him immediately um so this is like an elite school and you assume that like at an elite school the teachers are good right not just like tough or or demanding but like they know what they're doing like they're well qualified teachers um but at the same time there is this uh there there are these like you know, assumptions that are different right in Chinese culture, uh, the teacher's word is law, right? It's not, and, and that really cannot be overstated, I think. Um, the idea that whatever the teacher says, the parents and the students have this trust in the teacher, that like the teacher knows what he or she is doing, and if you disagree or you think that like you would do it differently, it really does not matter because the teacher is the expert here and like you are not. And so, um, Lenora Chu has this like keystone story in the book that is also highlighted in the Wall Street Journal article of her son and eating eggs. And so basically what happens is that like her son at home just doesn't eat eggs, right? He just doesn't like eggs. He just doesn't eat them. And so Lenora is like, I'm not going to fight this battle. He's not going to eat eggs. So we're not just we're just not going to have him eat eggs. And then so he goes to he goes to kindergarten and Lenora realizes that over the course of like several days or weeks, um, he at home, her son just like starts eating eggs, right? Slowly and hesitantly, but he's eating the eggs. And she later finds out that the reason why he's willingly eating eggs is because every morning at school, the teacher is literally taking an egg and like forcing it into his mouth so that he will eat it, which is like from an American perspective and from Lenora's perspective as well, is, like, unethical on so many levels, right? Like, you cannot force feed children food, even if it's, like, good for them, even if the only reason why they won't eat it is because, like, they don't like it. Like, force feeding a child an egg is, like, problematic on so many levels, from a Western perspective, right? So Lenora marches over to the school, like, guns fuming, and she's like, why are you force feeding my child eggs? And the teacher is like, well, is he eating eggs now? And she's like, yes. And she was like, how do you suggest that you would f have him eat eggs if, if you didn't force him or something along those lines? And Lenora was like, well, we tell them that eggs are really good for you and that like they build strong bones and that they're nutritious and that they're, it's a good idea to eat them because they're good for you. And the teacher is like, does that work? <laughs> and Lenora is like, clearly not. Um, and the teacher then is like, well, our results speak for themselves, right? Like the problem was that he was not eating eggs and we force fed him eggs and now he eats eggs and that is a net win for everyone. Now he eats eggs and eggs are good for him. So that's a good thing. Um, and Lenora's like stunned, right? As, as I would be, as I think most people would be. Um, and then the kicker of the story really is this. The teacher then like goes and says to Lenora, she's like, please do not contradict the teacher's word, our word in front of your child again. Right. Like, please do not tell your child something different than what we are telling him, because it's really important for the teacher and the parent to be on the same page, which is like not a foreign concept, whether it be a, in a China, in Asian or a Western context. Um, but the difference here is that the teacher is the one who is deciding what the say is. Right. What say that what 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 the, what the what the message is. Um, and 
that is just so different from my experience. I mean, I, I'm blessed to be in a place where like, you know, it's a tight community and, you know, I don't, I'm not, you know, the, the typical challenges exist, but I'm not ever like that stressed out or more stressed out than, than most teachers are. Um, but I think one thing that I have noticed is that in American, with American parents, um, there is this somewhat implicit understanding that teacher, it's okay to like question a teacher's philosophy or methodology, right? It's okay to like have a kid come home and, and tell their, tell the mom and dad and say like, man, Miss So-and-So's test was totally unfair. And the parent will be like, oh, maybe it really was. Maybe we should look into that. Um, and then you look at the test and then the, the parent is like, oh, this does kind of seem unfair to me. Like, you know, maybe. And then I will go to the teacher and talk to them about them and tell them that maybe I thought it was a little unfair. Um, and, and this is not an, out of like a ill will. This is like because education at the very least is seen as a collaborative effort where um, the parent's input on a child's education is like actually to be taken seriously, even though the parents are like not professionals. Right. Um there's a lot of merits to this, right? Like it's, you know, the parent obviously understands their child the best. The teacher is the one who spends a lot of waking hours with their child. And so this partnership makes sense. But the difference here is that like um, parents are seen as like being somewhat equally weighted in terms of having their opinion respected by, um, by, by the teacher. Whereas in China, it's kind of like if you're a parent, right? Like the teach whatever the teacher says they need, uh, parent should say yes sir i will do that and this is in the book this is like very literally laid out in like the sense that lenora realizes that like the class has the parents in of the children in that class have like this running wechat group which is like a messaging app that's used in china there's a wechat group of like everyone's parents and like the teacher says something like we need to have i don't know what it was something really strange like plastic ears for a certain performance, can every parent please bring in a pair of plastic ears for their child? And my first reaction is like, what in the world do you actually, what is this? But like, instead, every parent was like, yes, ma'am, I will get those plastic ears. You're the best. Wow. All this stuff. Just like instant compliance. No question. You just know that teacher knows best and you just trust them. Um, that's one thing that I realized was like very absent from what we see in American culture. Not that that's like a necessarily a bad thing, but um, this idea that the teacher just kind of can say something or or it's assumed that the teacher knows what they're doing, um, even if like it means that they're force feeding their child eggs. We just assume parents just assume that the teacher knows what they're doing and that their methodology that what they do is is to be trusted, um, and the teacher will tell the parent that like it's important that the teacher's word and the parent's word do not contradict each other so as to not confuse the child which is uh really what like the end of this egg story was all about one thing that the book touched upon that i'm glad that they didn't really dwell too much on because it's just kind of i feel an overdone theme when we're talking about comparing chinese culture and western culture um is this idea that suffering as a concept is permissible if not welcomed. And I use the word suffering uh, kind of with a caveat because that sounds very, very negative in English. There's actually a term that the book uses, um, a Chinese term called shiku, which literally means to eat bitterness, to consume bitterness. And like my caustic self just thinks of that as being suffering because that's really what it is, right? Um, to be able to consume, to willingly, you know, put into oneself these negative emotions, these negative experiences. Um, and the thing is, like, the idea of chiku, it's not really, like, a wholly negative thing. There's also, there's this, there's this, there's this connotation of, like, if you chiku, if you suffer, there is an, a, there's a reward at the end. So, therefore, chiku is kind of like a, a respected, a lauded thing. Um, the place where the book quotes this is actually... Um, it quotes a book by Jing Dong Tai, Tai Jing Dong, who is like a conductor who we'll actually talk about in the next episode because we actually, I actually got to meet him in a project that we did. Um, but it's easy to assume that American education has no element of chiku whatsoever because like people assume that in contrast to Chinese education, American education is like easy and fun and carefree and not challenging, right? Like if you ask a lot of like, um, you know, people who have not left China, what they think American education is like based on like the teen movies they see, they just think that China, that American education, American high school is like super, super fun. Not gonna lie. I think it kind of is. Um, 
But the idea that American schooling, American education is not challenging isn't necessarily true, I think. Um, but I think what is more accurate is the idea that um, Westerners, Americans believe that learning should not make you feel bad. Which I think if you're an American is something like, well, duh, right? Learning is a positive, necessary thing. Um, and if you make it something that a child associates with negative emotions, then they're not going to want to learn. So therefore, it makes sense for learning to be something that inspires positively and happiness and joy in a child. Um, and learning, school, should not make you feel bad. Um, which, which sounds like a very, like, you know, boomer thing to say to millennials because they can't handle the, like, the, the cruel, cruelty of life. But it makes sense, right? Like, if you, like, every child must learn, and learning requires work. And if learning plus work plus, like, negative emotions happens, then, like, the child's not going to want to learn. And that's really bad news for everyone. So, therefore, associating learning with good emotions, with happy emotions, with, like, something encouraging, that makes sense, right? Um, but when it comes to, like, Asian culture, right, uh, it's, it's almost as if, like, there's this underlying assumption that learning can and maybe should make you feel bad. Right. Or if they if, or not make you feel bad, but like it, it, it it's reasonable ex to expect that learning as a process also includes frustration or feeling discouraged or just other like negative emotions. Right. Those two kind of are inevitable because learning is hard um, and learning requires effort. And so if those things are true, then there should be an expectation that you will fail and failure oftentimes breeds disappointment. Right. And those are, those are not pleasant emotions. Um, but, but you learn to kind of accept that that is the truth. Why? Because, um, you know that this effort, this suffering, this chikul will ultimately lead to a worthwhile reward. And that in itself, right. The idea that like, if we are able to let or if we are able to be okay with the idea of letting children, young children, go through periods of feeling bad about themselves or being disappointed or frustrated or like, I don't know, like what the quintessential picture of a child crying over their homework at a kitchen table. If like we're okay with that, then and we know that there is there is an end to that suffering and that end marks the beginning of like success and uh, a reward, um, then 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 you're able to push children to like much higher expectations and this is really great uh, quote that that really stuck out to me because it had to do with um in the book a quote in the book that had to do with how the child in the book um lenora's son learned chinese because i was just really interested to see how like you know how how the chinese educational context really kind of encourages or is the framework for learning chinese period uh, just because I think that, like, the idea of, you know, chikou does really apply to to memorizing characters. Anyone who has memorized characters understands that. Um, so this is really great, great quote. The way that she describes it is just really great. She says, um, equipped with flashcards and ready to practice, my son's Chinese language teacher knows that he is capable of learning the 3,500 characters required for literacy in Chinese. His primary school math teacher gives no child a free pass on triple-digit arithmetic and, in fact, stays after school to help laggards. Chinese China's school system breeds a Chinese style grit, which delivers the daily message that perseverance, not intelligence or ability, is key to success. So this idea that anyone, regardless of their background, regardless of their intelligence level, anyone, as long as they persevere, as long as they work hard, they are able to succeed at the highest level. They have as much a chance to succeed as like the kid who was a prodigy. Um, instead of relying on this idea that of Westerners can be are oftentimes accused of being enamored with this idea that some people are just super talented and other people aren't. And so if you're super talented, if you're just blessed in that way, then you have a chance of succeeding. If you're not blessed, well, you know, you just do you, right? Maybe succeeding is not for you. Um, but the Chinese, this Chinese philosophy seems quite egalitarian in the sense that it, it, it assumes that everyone has a fair chance. Everyone has an equal chance, and the only difference is how hard you work. And, and the reason why it's worth it is because there is a reward at the end. If you work hard, you will succeed. You will bring your family out of poverty. You will, you know, there will be generational change between what your parents did. You will be better off than the generations before you as long as you work hard. And 
you wonder whether or not this expectation, right? Like if I suffer enough, then I will eventually succeed and my suffering will end eventually. Is this like idealistic or unrealistic to a certain point? I think it kind of is, especially in the Chinese context, because like it's so competitive and there's so many people who like all want very similar things. And so just statistically, like it's, it's, it's really hard to say that like if you just work your butt off, then you have that one chance in a billion to make it to the top. Um, just by sheer numbers alone, I think in China, feels really hard to say that that's still an idealist, a, a realistic option. In the U.S., I feel like maybe we need a little more of that just because we have so many more opportunities here. There are so many versions of success. Um, and maybe, I don't know, Americans should consider suffering a little more because, because the reward is so much more realistic over here than it is over there. Um, but anyway... Uh, the book mentions that Chinese students, regardless of background, all hold on to the hope that education is a way out for them. Um, in the book, Lenora mentions several people who have like just very, you know, unfortunate backgrounds, like a housekeeper, nanny, who like uh, just send pour everything into their children's education, um, move cities so that they can like test into better schools. Um, so that they can have this golden ticket out, right? Which sounds very cinematic and almost cliched to a point, but but these stories are real, right? And and the idea of education being something that no one can ever take away from you. I remember hearing that when I was younger as well. Um, that education is something that anyone can achieve with hard work. But kind of this interesting twist halfway through the book was uh, as Lenora was doing this research, right? She's a journalist. Um, she found out something kind of unexpected. And that was that um, a key motivation for teaching or training students to be obedient in the classroom, eating eggs when they didn't want to eat eggs, uh, to be willing to suffer um, and to put interest, put the interests of the group first rather than themselves is because she realized that there were connections to these, these, these moral um, or these values to the idea that education in China, at least, is a way of shaping compliant citizens, um, as well as eventual loyalists to the Communist Party. Um, and, th and this isn't just me being like in exaggerating something. There was there's there, a significant portion of the book talks about um, how high school students or college students. Um, a mark of honor is being recognized as being part of like the young pioneers, I think is what it's called, um, or just like the, the youth branch of the Communist Party. The idea that that is like the golden badge, right? That is that is what success looks like when you have suffered that much. That is what the ideal looks like. And so um, if you're government, right, like and you're in having control of, of your of your citizenry is is, is a kind of a nice thing, right? Um, because having people who are not compliant or, or not willing to be loyal creates a headache for you if you are the type of government who, uh, I don't know, wants to be able to do a lot of things with a lot of efficiency without much arguing. Um, and so building an education system in a way that builds or molds compliance, uh, obedient citizens um, is can be seen as being like a, a tool to just, you know, create people who know how to listen well and not much else and not cr create trouble, right? This is makes makes it seem as if education has a political purpose. And that in itself sounds incredibly insidious and undesirable to like our precious Western sensibilities because it basically means that education, the function of education, is basically indoctrination for political gain. Um, and, and I really don't think, I think that, that like this is not a new accusation whatsoever, um, it is oftentimes a very like oversimplified and flattened accusation. Um, but uh, Lenora Chu does kind of like come to the come to like a side sideline conclusion that the way that education is shaped in China, part and parcel, has to do with building a citizenry that is desirable to the form of government that they have. Um, and so, if, again, our precious Western sensibilities, as adorable as we are, we're like, man, that sounds awful. We definitely don't want that because we want free thinking children who are not slaves to the government. Um, and yet we people keep looking to China to see why they're so far ahead, usually in math and science. That usually tends to be like the, the field set that we compare ourselves to. Right. Um, so so and this question has been around for ages. Why like Asian countries 
uh, students in Asian countries score so much further ahead than U.S. students, and, and the U.S. students in particular, because we in the, the States tend to think that we are the best at everything. And so when someone goes ahead of us, we're like, what is happening? Um, and I think as a, re- as, as a reaction to that, a lot of Americans, a lot of people try to convince themselves that China isn't actually ahead at all. Um, and, and there is some merit to this because the metric that is used to kind of measure a child, a student's aptitude between countries, this test, the, uh, the PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, um, the book also mentions this as well. It's not, it's, it's been criticized as being a, not an inaccurate test. Um, so maybe there is some merit that like China isn't as great as they, they, they tend to think of themselves or we tend to think of them as. Um, but usually the argument is that, well, China is great or Asian countries are great at educating students, but they lack the creativity that Western education brings. And one question that the book constantly poses is, is it possible to have a Chinese Steve Jobs? Is it possible to have someone who like dropped out of college and yet was able to change the world through his ingenuity and creativity and entrepreneurship um, without the benefit of a higher education, without the benefit of chikuing his way through an education? Um, is it possible to have a Chinese Steve Jobs, someone who thinks that far outside the box? I don't know if the book actually ever like answers that. Um and I think it's like a it's it's kind of an argument that ends up being somewhat circular. And the people who generally argue that the downfall of Chinese education is that it discourages creativity, I think it's a pretty short-sighted argument because that kind of points the, the underlying assumption to that is that Chinese people now, like Chinese adults, are not creative. Um and, and that is just not true. Um, and, and so creativity can come from places other than just school. The humans are not like limited to their, their abilities are not limited by just how they were educated. And so, um, that, that argument, that conversation, I generally like don't enjoy engaging with just because I feel it, 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 there are some underlying assumptions that just aren't true. Um, but, but it's a worthwhile question. The question being, um, you know, how, who was further ahead how do we measure who is further ahead and why? What do we value in either of those things? In general, I, I think the book, Little Soldiers, is uh, a good read, if not a necessary one, um, if only because the arguments that surround Asian versus Western educational philosophies are so abundant. Um, and again, like I said, they've been happening since forever. Um, but they tend to be pretty reductive in my experience, and they rely on these cultural or political assumptions on why certain people groups are the way that they are. Like Chinese people are just like that because of these very, very reductive reasons, and Western people are just like that because of these very, very reductive reasons. Um, and that assumption therefore assumes that these two people groups, because of who they are, are impervious to change. Um, that Chinese people will always act a certain way because they are Chinese and Westerners will always act in a certain way because they are Westerners. Um, I think that Lenora, when she was writing this book, um, she did not come in with this like huge agenda of like, how do we address the disparity between American and Chinese education? She came up with a really simple question and that was, uh, should she continue sending her child to local schools in China? Um, her being from a Western background, being educated in the U.S., like, should she continue to send her child to Chinese schools? What is the benefit of that? And the larger question, if there is one, is um, what, if anything, uh, should the U.S. or should the West learn from how China teaches its students? Um, and so at the, at the conclusion of the book, she basically says that she is still going to continue sending her son to local schools until it becomes necessary or more beneficial for him to go to an international school which is like well that sounds that sounds pretty reasonable um what's interesting though is that her younger son actually doesn't go to a local school because he doesn't make it in so there's an interesting kind of thing that's happening there but uh what i think this actually highlights is the idea that she as an american has that choice. Like she can say, I want to send my child to a local school because I see the benefits of it right now. And once those benefits cease to exist, then I have the option of going where it's somewhere more beneficial. She can select from the best of both worlds in a sense. Um, and, and it's important to acknowledge the privilege at play there. If only because much of what characterizes Chinese education is the lack of choice. 
Um, I like I said before, I don't believe that Chinese people suffer just for the sake of suffering. Um, I think that they're that they've come to a point where like suffering has become so normalized that it's become accepted if not venerated. But it's not as if like Chinese people as a monolith just woke up one day and says we as Chinese people like value suffering more than I don't know joy and happiness and good things in life. We we like to suffer, so we'll, that's how we'll do things. It, suffering. As a means to an end, was born out of necessity, right? Like if you did not work hard, there are no options for you. So what choice do you have? You have to have a bad time. You have to shiku in order to 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 get anywhere.、Um, and if they had the choice to not shiku and still get somewhere, I'm sure that lots of people will make that choice. But、um, the reason for this suffering ends up being an issue of necessity. And if you do not have that necessity, then the world opens up to you a whole lot more. And so that's kind of why, like, it's super annoying for Westerners to constantly flaunt the benefits of creativity and learning,、uh, you know, in 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 reference to the Western philosophy of education, as if it is something that like Chinese people don't know about already, right? As if it's like you know Chinese people are so married to this idea of allowing children to you know be sad throughout schooling that creativity is something that like oh we never thought of that. Um, you know, one common thing that that people will mention is college entrance exams or college entrance and how different it is in the U.S. versus in China.、Um, in China or in a lot of Asian countries, basically, you take one test one time, and your score on that one test determines where you go to college. Nothing else. Like it's you're literally, very literally, reduced to one number for your entire future to be decided. And in the states, obviously, it's not that we have the SAT, but the SAT is a small part of a larger application. Um, and when colleges look at students, when they look at prospective applicants, they look at the student as a whole. They see, you know, whether or not they're a good fit for the college, and what they write in their essays, and what their teachers say about them, and and the idea of you as a person, your personality, what you bring to the table,、um, is really emphasized. This creativity thing is kind of a given.、Um, but the thing is, is the the reason why Asian countries have stuck to this test model, and you'll hear this a lot. From sensible people, is that like it's a matter? It's a it's a matter of e- leveling the playing field.、Um, what if you live in a place where there are no there there is no place for you to take ice skating lessons or do volunteer work in a foreign country? Like, what if you don't have those resources?、Um, what if you don't have the resources to make yourself interesting enough to get yourself to the next like social、um, the next social tier? Is are you just like? Are you are you just condemned to your to to like uh you know this generational poverty because your parents cannot afford to make you interesting,、um, and so a test is just one way that everyone has to where everyone has to play by the same rules. We don't have that issue in the U.S. or at least we don't we like to think we don't have that issue in the U.S. because we've I guess figured out other ways to level the playing field.、Um, But again, it's like super annoying for people to say that Asian culture does not value creativity, and we have been so enlightened so as to know better,、um, because that benefit only exists for people living under stable enough conditions to have those options, and this extends to like what careers we value as well, right?、Um, you can make a decent living doing what you love in a relatively developed country, right? Because the infrastructure there exists for you to succeed. What if there is no infrastructure? Then your lot, then your options are very limited.、Um, the idea of like Asian immigrant parents demanding that their child become a doctor, lawyer, engineer is not a. It's not just. It's not just a cliche because parents only want only value those careers. It's because those careers are stable and they guarantee a stable life. Um, because if you're coming from a family where your roots are only one generation deep, you can't rely on you know family to take you in if things go south, right? There is a smaller cushion for you, and this is not something. This is something I didn't realize until like I interacted with more people who are like not Asian and not immigrant background,、um, who saw like their gra- their father and their grandfather and their great grandfather all work. What they saw to be like, you know, good stable jobs, right? Like, you know, your your typical all American factory job or whatever. Like, what what we say is like good stable, a good union job.、Um, you see that as proof that it is possible to make a life based on these, you know, whether it be these like these good union jobs or just following your passions. There is that like generational privilege.、Um, 
And in countries or situations or people or families who don't have that stability, options decrease for them. And that's kind of what we see happening in terms of like what, why the values for, you know, an education in Asian countries tend to be so singular because the options are smaller. They're, the path to success is narrower and the path to success is one that is lined with having to work hard. You cannot get out of that. And if it's understood that like you can succeed as long as you work hard and nothing, not your own intellect, not your own background, not your own ability, your talent, none of that is keeping you in the way from succeeding. All you have to do is be willing to suffer for a little bit. Then the path seems pretty clear. So I'm saying all this, right? And we're going on about like generational privilege and the fact that in China, the only option you have is to suffer. The only option that you have is to trickle through your education because there is a reward and it's a distant reward, but it still exists and there's only one way to get to it, right? We can say all that and we can, as Chinese teachers in the US, we could look over there and be like, man, if our students in the US had that same tenacity for suffering, if they were as desperate as those students in China, man, our jobs would be so much easier. We could literally just give them anything and they would cry over their homework and that would actually be okay. Um, but the reality exists, right? It's a weekend, it's a Saturday night, I'm sitting at home, I'm philosophizing, <laughs> philosophizing about all these things, but the reality exists that I'm going to go back to work on Monday and see my middle schoolers and see my high schoolers and be reminded that kids are going to be kids. And they still have to learn Chinese, even though they're not like conditioned to suffer through their schooling, nor should they have to, right? Um, why suffer through something that should be good? You know, I'm still going to believe in that. Um, and so I think there is a greater question then of how do you teach kids to have grit, um, that Chinese style grit even, um, within a culture that does not really assume that learning really requires any degree of suffering or, or, or frustration or disappointment or bad feelings. Um, one thing that I have been emphasizing to my students recently is the importance of practice. Um, and practice meaning just very basically just the idea of interacting or engaging with something on a regular daily basis. And this is just very, very simple, right? Like you can't like study Chinese, study a language really for like three hours in one day and then forget it exists for a week and then go back to it and then expect to be on the same level. Like that's, that's just like a no brainer for most of most adults for kids. They have a little bit of a harder time understanding that. So one big thing that I've been working on this year with them is the idea of daily practice and engaging with stuff in a meaningful way. And in order to explain this to them, I've taken to comparing practicing a language with practicing an instrument since I have a bunch of kids who are like uh who are who play in band and whatever um and they understand the idea that you can't like play the trumpet or play the violin for like you know three days three three hours cram it all into one day and then like not touch your instrument for a week and then come back to it like they know that um they know that daily practice is necessary but one thing that they haven't really realized yet because they're young is the idea that practice not only comes in the form of repetition which is boring um but it comes in the form of like working through stuff that you don't really want to do right like the stuff it's 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 easy to like practice or something you're really good at because that's fun and you feel successful by like doing something that you do well um but it's a lot harder and a lot more like harder for you to like find the motivation to practice through something that you are really terrible at or you're not good at yet that you're struggling with um and so we're working on that um especially with my middle schoolers on how to kind of like shift our thinking to desire good practice. Um, and I think even as adults, that's something that many people struggle with, especially when we see people who like engage in that kind of practice, like very willingly, right? There are some people out there in general who like love to like nerd out over music or languages even. And so for them, you know, it's not that they're not practicing. It's that practice for them is just so joyful to begin with, right? They love going through all this stuff, like love learning new characters and copying them over and over because they, they think it's really fun. I like, I don't know who these people are, but they exist. Like they're like the polyglots that we see um, on YouTube and stuff, or like people who like, who we were, we look up to and be like, wow, I wish we, we could find that much joy in our suffering. But generally speaking, the reason why they, they tend to see so much joy in what is otherwise a really repetitive, boring activity is probably because they're just really talented to begin with, right? The rest of us peasants 
probably don't find practice to be fun, at least initially. And this is very understandable because repetition is boring and because we don't want to like have to suffer and take time on something that like we're not good at, right? This is just being human. Um, it's hard. And yet it's hard to ignore the fact that people do it. And what I mean by that is that like people, regardless of their talent level, willingly put in that practice. And the greatest example of this is the fact that China has over 1 billion people and they all memorized enough characters to be literate in their native language. It doesn't matter like what education level they are. It doesn't matter how talented or smart they are. They all managed to do it. Um, likewise, uh, a bunch of like, you know, fairly privileged Asian American kids um, of all different intellectual persuasions of all different, like, you know, talent levels of music managed to become proficient, uh, though not necessarily passionate in an instrument. Um, not only just like any instrument, like not like guitar or singing, but like classical music, right? How many like kids do you know are genuinely passionate enough about classical music to like become pretty okay with it by the time they're like in, in middle school or high school? Not a lot, right? And yet there's this whole generation of upper um, middle upper class Asian American kids who like all play piano or all play violin and are like pretty okay at it, right? Um, they managed to do it because they have been able to like fight through that practice, fight through that like unpleasant feeling. Um, and over time, right, both the people who learn the language as well as the people who learn the instrument, over time, a good few of them manage, or maybe not a good few, but like some of them manage to find a love in practicing, not necessarily like a love of playing the instrument or speaking the language itself, not necessarily just the, the end result um, or the reward, but a joy, a love of the process. Um, I'm reminded of this interview that uh, this YouTuber duo, Two Set Violin, uh, they're like this classical music uh, violinist people, uh, but they did this interview, their whole thing, their whole shtick, like one of their like um, one of their like running jokes is this idea that practice is super important, right? The violinist practice is super important. And they did this interview a while back um, where they talked about what that practice actually meant to them. The idea that practice um, was like a constant in their life. It was this point of stability. Um, it was this great way of like forgetting all the bad things around you. And it becomes almost this like what seems to be like this meditative exercise, right? Um and when you get to that point where you see practice, you know, you go from practice being like a negative, boring thing that you want to actively avoid to something that is a point of stability. Um, and then it somehow eventually comes to a point where it's an outlet for creativity in and of itself. Um, same group did this video with uh, Hilary Hahn, who is like this incredible violinist, um, how she practices because, you know, even professional even the best violinist in the in the world still practice violin um how her practice how her practice regimen is and it's really just this it's almost like as if she's in this like workshop or like this this laboratory and she sees practice as an outlet for creativity this way of tinkering on the violin um this way of the idea that it's not just the the, the end reward that matters it's the process it's like getting to that level though is like is, 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 it takes time, right? And it takes perseverance. But I think for people who eventually become passionate about language, who are not necessarily like super talented or virtuous, virtuous like prodigies at it, don't know the word, prodigies at language, um, I think it's a similar progression, right? Uh, people who end up being really good at languages um, but had to work for it, they find the joy in the process. And, and, and that sounds like very, those, those sound like very trite words, but I think the idea of tinkering with a language, I mean, that's, I'm not a super, I'm not like a super nerd over languages either, ironically, but the idea of tinkering with Chinese is something that I, I think is super cool and fun and an outlet of creativity. Um, and, and I think that is, that points to, might not necessarily be the key to, but it points to um, how we might be able to help people who are not willing to suffer uh, or, or, or cannot suffer, right? Because that, that also is a thing. Um, high anxiety people, people with learning differences who cannot, who just don't have that, like, you know, the ability to feel, to be, to associate learning with pain. Like, I, yeah, that shouldn't have to be the norm. Um, for them to still find their way to proficiency in a language and also find it to be a joyful, positive thing. 
Um, but I think in both circumstances, whether it be like, you know, you being this prodigy at a language or no, that's the only exception. Um, whether it be you like suffering because you have to, or like finding your way to enjoying the process, there is a period of, uh, what I think I'd like to call like fighting through the suck. Um, I think that's a good way of like framing this. The idea that like there is a there is a period of suckiness. There is a period where things are unpleasant, um, and you need to get through that unpleasantness or find the joy in that unpleasantness or make it a not unpleasant thing um, in order to reach a place where you can enjoy what it is you do. Right. Um, and the thing is, like, I don't think this is a Western versus Asian idea. The book, uh, you know, Lenore Chu's book mentions that Americans in particular, um, exercise extreme discipline and willingness to fight through the suck when it comes to sports. Um, they're willing to run drills over and over and over again so that they perfect their technique. Like, um, people are willing to like pay coaches more. I don't know. I don't know sports, but people are willing to like let their kids push themselves through sports that they can get better. There's no sense of like my, I don't know, soccer gives my child anxiety, so she shouldn't have to play soccer. Um, like there's a higher threshold for that, I'd say in general, like in mainstream culture, not that this applies to everyone. Cause as a non-athletic person myself, I will definitely say that playing soccer gives me extreme anxiety. Um, and I would like to avoid playing it whenever possible. Um, but, but all that is to say is that like, there is, there exists this, the possibility for that expectation. Um, and I wonder why that is, is it because, uh, that American culture like gives us a clearer vision of the reward? Is it easier for American kids to visualize what a pro soccer player looks like? Um, does that then become more attainable to them? Does it become more concrete for them to see like, here is someone who fought through the suck because and, and had extreme discipline and they were able to achieve this and they love it and they are a better person for it. Um, and why don't we have those models for like, for education? Um, we do, but are they nearly as venerated? And I mean, this then goes to a very jaded conversation as to like why we value athletes and celebrities more than we value intellects. Like, okay, yeah, I'm not the first person I've touched on that, but like it, it, it stands to reason that, um, the value in having those role models is because like, it's really important to see what the reward is. It's really important to see what, why the suffering, why fighting through the suck is worth it. Um, at the same time, though, uh, Chinese teachers who are teaching in Western educational contexts also need to acknowledge that as kids learn, they're learning, but they're also fighting through a very big suck um, because Chinese is super hard, y'all. Like like people, I mean, I, I'm a heritage speaker of Chinese, but I didn't learn to read and write until I was literally in college. And it's really, really hard. And I know that like Chinese teachers are empathetic to that, but maybe not like empathetic enough. Um but 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 the constant reminder that kids who are learning Chinese, every especially in those beginning stages, they are fighting through a lot of suck, and it's really hard, and it's not a pleasant feeling. And not only that, like suckage is not something that these kids might be used to, right? It's not just that it is hard; it's that this level of hard work is something that they might not be accustomed to. So the question then more becomes: How do we convince these kids that? The suffering, this chukul, this fighting through the suck is worth it. Um, is it enough to show them the benefit of the reward? Like, is it enough for us to say, hey, if you learn Chinese, you can go to China or you can make a lot of money because you will be like useful for business? Like, is it is it enough to just show them a role model? Like, it's it seems to have worked for sports, but it seems also that like kids aren't just idolizing, you know, soccer players or football players because they're celebrities, but they also I mean, kids are kids are kids are smart people like they see the these athletes character and they see how they transform as people um maybe we need to look at it at that level that we that we expect more from kids from a like a like a spiritual level almost that they they know how to realize the intrinsic value of learning another language and it's not just about earning money or like being able to go go on a vacation um also is their idea of a reward the same as ours right like we might, and I've seen like Chinese teachers try to like translate um, or, or try to stimulate interest in Chinese based on just like showing them like Chinese legends and fables and holidays and food, which is like all good and fine. But is that what they find interesting as well? Like maybe we should, maybe we need to make a more concerted effort in finding out what their motivations are, what motivates them instead of like assuming that what motivates us motivates them as well. And I, and I apply that to myself as well, because even though I consider myself like not, 
in the typical like you know mold of Chinese teacher. Um, what motivated me to learn Chinese is not the same as theirs, right? I learned it because I'm I'm ethnically Chinese and it's an important part of my identity. And most of my students don't share that with me, so I also need to find out what motivates them, what their idea of a reward is, and that really just takes um, spending time with them and getting to know them as people and getting to know what they care about besides just what I care about, which is like you know them learning Chinese. I think there's always going to be people who look at examples of really disciplined kids, like the examples in Lenora Chu's books, and say that like telling kids to be compliant, telling kids to be obedient, teaching them to just follow the rules, is not hard, right? Like it's it's not hard to just tell a kid that you have to do this or else,、um, or otherwise like condition kids to desire excellence only out of a fear of punishment. Um, I think the people who both agree with this methodology, agree with the merits of this, or and or disagree that this is a bad way of going about things, I think people on both sides would probably agree on one thing, and that is、um, forcing kids to comply as a method of education is simple and easy. Right? It's straightforward. It doesn't require much creative thinking. You don't really have to be a good teacher in order to teach people to be obedient.、Um, I think people who both think that. Teaching kids obedience、um, is a great thing, as well as a bad thing. Would agree on that.、Uh, that it's an easy thing to do. But I, from my experience, actually think that teaching kids compliance in this in American cultural context is very, very difficult.、Um, because I've tried it, right? And I've tried it only because when I just started teaching, I had to go off of what I learned, how I learned Chinese in the past,、um, and and use those as like my benchmark. And I realized. That it was such a losing battle, only because like this mode of thinking, this mode of like conditioning children into compliance is extremely unpopular, right? Like you're not gonna get community buy-in, you're not gonna get parent buy-in、um, from these really harsh methods.、Uh, but not only that, right? Not not even just like you know the community won't doesn't agree with me. It's not just that.、Um, kids are changing. Kids these days are more anxious and more nervous than before. Um, and and our I hate saying this as a millennial, but like they're just not as resilient to high pressure, and that's important for us to acknowledge because it's not just them being like soft and delicate; it's that they associate academic failure with moral failure.、Um, the idea that if I'm a bad student, I'm also a bad person, or that I'm like less of a person,、um, that less people will like me,、um, and that, those are all things that are not true. Um, but that's actually what makes them nervous and anxious. The idea that if they fail, it's not just you know I'm not smart enough anymore. It's like I am not I am not enough as a person. That's the reality that we're dealing with when we're teaching K twelve、uh, Chinese, when we're teaching high school, middle school Chinese.、Uh, we're working with like actual people, right? Not that people need to re- teachers need to be reminded of that,、um, but it's easy to and and I count myself as being equally as guilty of this. It's easy to look at kids in America and then look at kids in Asia and see how hard they're being pushed, how hard they're,、uh, how how much they are they have to shiku to go to to achieve anything, and to look at our kids who cannot shiku, cannot suffer, and be like, why can't you be more like them? All it just takes is resilience and willingness to work hard. Why can't you do that? But the thing is, that's not our reality. If that's not our reality, how do we work with it?、Um, how do we keep at the end of the day? And this is kind of like my big. Like you know, vocational life question: How do we keep Chinese learning accessible to everyone?、Um, not just people who are just super nerdy about languages, not just kids who are very bright, not just kids who come who come from backgrounds that encourage、um, a high level of pressure and achievement when it comes to education or language learning.、Um, not even kids who have like a cultural background in Chinese and. Who um who have kind of a leg up when it comes to learning Chinese? How do we keep Chinese learning accessible for everyone? The anxious kid, the kid who has a, a 504, the kid who, um, who just doesn't want to go to school, like who the kid who is averse to learning as a whole. How do we keep this language that feels so Byzantinean, that feels so inaccessible, that literally was inaccessible for so many people for like literal dynasties? How do we then keep it accessible to everyone? And I think through this podcast is some that's that's one question that、um, that will keep reoccurring.、Uh, this idea of 
uh, unwrapping, unraveling what the culture behind Chinese learning and teaching actually is, and how that speaks into Chinese culture as a whole, and what happens when that clashes. Hate using that word, but when that intersects with,、um, you know, different value systems, different expectations. All right, and that brings us to the end of this very first episode of the Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast.、Um, thanks for joining us for this week, and be sure to subscribe on wherever it is you listen to podcasts, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere.、Um, if you are on Apple Podcasts, or even if you're not, it actually would be really helpful for you to leave us a review so that we know how we're doing,、um, as well as give us、uh, kissing five stars if you really like what you hear and want to, us to keep going. Um, be sure to also follow us on social media. We're everywhere.、Um, on Instagram, we are at Bad Chinese Teacher. On Twitter, we are at Bad Chinese Pod.、Uh, character limitation. And you can also find us on Facebook at、uh, through searching Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast.、Um, we're hoping to publish new episodes every week after this three episode debut blitz.、Um, and if you're looking for me, you can also find me on social media. I am at Patricia Liu, P A T R I C I A L I U on Instagram. Uh, Patricia S Q Liu on Twitter, and you can also check out my writing at blog. Patricia Liu. Net, and the website for this podcast is badchineseteacher. Com, so you can also find us there. All right, that does it for this week. We'll see you next time.